sickle. Bleeds and forests which the woods, the paths clear enough, but goats not sleep. Oh, it was the ocean. Halloween episode. Not a typical one, as you can hear, as I am uh, not conversing with Mrs. Carswell in our little warm-up. I'm afraid she's uh, still staying at the hotel, as mentioned last time, regarding her being upset about the house, something about uh, bad aura or energies or something. I'm not sure you'd call it ghosts, but uh, some uh, friendlier overtures have been exchanged, so I'm uh, hoping for an imminent resolution. A Halloween miracle, perhaps. I am also hoping your season has been a good one, and um, I have permission to extend Halloween greetings to all of you from Mrs. Carswell, and uh, that she uh, misses you. I believe that's what the note said. Uh, we'll not be ending our show with me haranguing you for uh, pledges. I think you all have heard the rewards that are available to subscribers. And uh, as I'm recording this a bit earlier than it will air, I do want to thank anyone who happens to donate between now and the end of the month. And uh, we'll do so by name in November. So, uh, on with our show. Who put the hell in Halloween? Devil's Night. Hello, I'm Pastor Gary, and I'm doing a message called Halloween, a diabolical trick or a harmless treat. And talk about the occult, about Do we paganism. dare celebrate this night of death? This is Satan's holiday, and it is a night when there is particular... When you send your children out trick-or-treating, when you let them go to parties where Satan is glorified, when you let them dress up as ghouls and goblins and all kinds of satanic creatures, and skeletons, Satan witches, when you do these fangs and the blood dripping, pictures of witches and ghosts and all the objects relating to Satan's world are abominable. to secure an invitation to a black mass. This sounds like an interesting and entertaining evening. All too often and tragically, they realize their mistake too late. Whether or not you lived through the satanic panic, you're likely aware of the shadow it cast over Halloween. Even for the more skeptical, it did make the holiday just a bit scarier. Since 2019, uh, we've been using our October episodes to look at different ways the spirits of Halloween have been summoned in recent times, from the boisterous pranks and genteel parties of the 20s and 30s to the midnight spook shows of the 40s and 50s and finally the late night horror hosts of the 60s and 70s and the satanic panic 
is associated, of course, with the 1980s. At least that's when it got really ugly. There are plenty of podcasts you can listen to that gleefully tear into all those sordid details. But as this is a folklore program, I'm not interested in adjudicating cases or examining how specific lives were ruined or otherwise uh, spoiling the joy of this happy season. Instead, we'll look at how the beliefs necessary to the panic were set in place, first quietly in 1950s England, and how they then flared up in the early 60s across the Atlantic, and then by the late 60s finally blazed into a full-blown international obsession. In 1972 or 3, all the groundwork for the panic was in place, and that's where we'll end our episode. I'm sure listeners are aware of this occult revival in terms of the watershed movies it generated, everything from Rosemary's Baby to The Exorcist to television's embrace of these themes and the birth of bands like Black Sabbath and a whole genre of scary devil music. But it wasn't just that. Even practicing witches from small towns were cutting their own records. In 1968, Barbara Ann Roars of South Bend, Indiana, released an album as Barbara the Grey Witch. And I am a witch. Oh yes, most definitely. A real life... And from Port Huron, Michigan, Marianne Kuklo invented herself as Gundela the Green Witch, eventually writing an in-character advice column for a Detroit newspaper and cutting an album. For I was born into a family where witchcraft was a tradition. My mother was a witch. My grandmother... And that's not including releases by two witches from Los Angeles, from Louise Hubner, dubbed the official witch of Los Angeles, or Babetta Lancilli, uh, a.k.a. Babetta the sexy witch who ran an occult shop and posts for a 1974 penthouse pictorial what the purpose of the evocation is. This falls into the area of magic known as divination. So you will need, in addition to... Yeah, well, Bavetta's record actually isn't all that sexy. Uh, Hoopner's, I would say, is the best produced. Circle by loneliness and cold darkness. Are you afraid? So are a lot of other people. But Barbara the Grey Witch is the only one who... Song. The witch's love song. I see your face, I hear your voice, and you've been gone. Uh, well, uh, that's kind of a lot of witch records, but it is sort of a pet topic of mine. And before the end of the show, one of these celebrity witches will figure into our story. Their children know why they have to be quiet. Mummy's playing witch again. First thing they think of when you say Satanist is a ha-ha, devil worshiper, blood sacrifices and sex orgies, you know. Uh, it just isn't so. We don't worship Satan or God. We don't believe in Satan or God. Satan is a symbol, a, a force, if you will. The reason we use Satan... This clip is from a 1972 documentary called The Occult, X Factor or Fraud. Uh, it's an interview with a New Jersey member of the First Church of Satan, one of the many spin-offs that arose in the early 70s from 
Anton LaVey's 1966 founding of the Church of Satan in San Francisco. And uh, honestly, I think the turn of phrase in the narration, playing which happens to be spot on, as much of this is really fun in games. LaVey was a showman and court jester of the occult, no more interested in occult study, I would say, than uh, members of uh, England and Ireland's Hellfire Clubs, which we uh, talked about this summer. As our uh, friend from New Jersey points out, there's no actual Satan in Satanism. LaVey's philosophy, as it were, is uh, mostly just an idiosyncratic mix of uh, elements skimmed from Nietzsche and uh, Ayn Rand, perhaps. Before he came up with the Satan routine, LaVey worked as an organist in bars, nightclubs, and burlesque houses, which helped when it came to finding a nude woman to serve as an altar. By the 1960s, he was in San Francisco heading up something called the Order of the Trapezoid, uh, which were uh, Friday night gatherings with uh, talks on outre subjects. A cult scholar or not, LaVey seems to have been an interesting, genial character, enough so to gather around him a circle of bohemians, including underground filmmaker Kenneth Anger, and writers and associates from horror and science fiction circles, uh, including Clark Ashton Smith, uh, Fritz Leiber, Forrest J. Ackerman, Uncle Forey. By the time these uh, bohemians reached out to the squares in the press, announcing the launch of this uh, Satan church, LeVay had cobbled together pretty much exactly what you'd expect a satanic mass to look like complete with plastic horns. If most of the public was just rolling their eyes, it did manage to get some of the early panickers panicky. Are you afraid? Are you afraid? So are a lot of other people. Now, if you flinched as you heard references to Satanists and witches in the same breath, it's because there have been a couple generations of Wiccans and neo-pagans working very hard to clean up some of the confusion sown in the early days of the movement. While LeVay's uh, secular Satanism was historically a flash in the pan, for more than seven centuries, witchcraft itself was widely understood as devil worship or traffic with demons. Such characterizations mingled with ancient Faustian legends of contracts signed with mysterious strangers, goat-like figures presiding over nighttime gatherings, centuries of all that, it's a bit much to completely undo in just a few decades. By the 1800s, when efforts had begun to interpret our witchy heritage from a less pious perspective, Scholars may have succeeded in removing Christian reference points, but couldn't really bring themselves to remove the notion of organized religion. That is, uh, religions of uh, classical antiquity, an area which has uh, not coincidentally always uh, fascinated scholarly types. American journalist and folklorist Charles Leland's questionably sourced book, Erodia, or the Gospel of the Witches, reframed witchcraft as the old religion with the Roman goddess Diana becoming the queen of the witches, uh, worshipped, albeit secretly, by witches even to this day. As 
Diana was understood as an embodiment of the moon. Leland makes her consort, who also happens to be her brother, an embodiment of the sun, giving him the name Lucifer. A problematic choice based on the name's Latin meaning light bearer. Lucifer, the god of light. The name also agrees in an intentionally superficial way with Christian accounts of witches worshipping Lucifer, thus fitting historical accounts from one perspective and his freshly minted theory. While Leland confined his discussion to Italy, in 1921, a similar notion of a secret pre-Christian religion, spanning not just Italy, but most all of Europe, was outlined in a work by the British Egyptologist Margaret Murray, the witch cult in Western Europe. Whereas uh, Leland's theory characterized the witch cult more as the matriarchy, Murray made her chief deity male. Bearing different names in different localities, she referred to this male god of the witches as the Horned God, another easily misinterpreted term. The Horned God, man's first image of the deity. The Horned God. We worship the, the Horned God of the hunt, the masculine son. Our Lord, the Horned Depending one, on the point of religion, he often wore a goat's mask, a symbol of virility. Neither of these books were of wide import at the time of their publication, and their theories are not supported by modern historical scholarship. But both were integral to the early formation of Wicca, and Leland and Murray's diabolical nomenclature weighed down the early movement with confusingly satanic baggage. The Horned God. The Horned God. Man's first image of the dead. Now, while the notion of an ancient secret of witch cult made its way into the pulps and the imagination of writers like Dennis Wheatley and Lovecraft in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, it, it wasn't until 1951 that an individual actually claiming to be in touch with this cult stepped forward. It was the retired British civil servant, Gerald Gardner, who turned witches from fiction to fact. Now, one could suddenly not only meet an actual witch, but apparently become one. Before this, bohemian types might have become ceremonial magicians as uh, members of bodies like the Golden Dawn, but this was all a parlor esoterica for the literary set. No one before had dared to use the bold and simple fairy tale word witch to describe themselves. Is it wrong to be out of step? Dan Farson goes out to challenge people who hold odd views about life. Are these people just cranks, or are they one step ahead of us? And now, to meet the witch, Dr. Gerald Gardner, who lives in a ruined mill among a collection of eerie relics of witchcraft. That's from a uh, 1957 British documentary series, Out of Step, which aired three years after Gardner had published his uh, much-talked-about book, Witchcraft Today. The uh, old mill mentioned was home to a museum of folklore and superstitions 
Created in 1947 by screenwriter, folklorist, and early Wiccan convert Cecil Williamson, in 1951, in celebration of the repeal of Britain's Witchcraft and Vagrancy Act, the museum changed its name to the Museum of Witchcraft, and Williamson invited in his friend Gardner, who was promoted as the resident witch. Gardner was already 67 when he came out as a witch. His earlier life had been spent as a manager and inspector at colonial tea and rubber plantations in Southeast Asia. Upon receiving an inheritance at the age of 52, he retired to England to Highcliffe in Dorset and pursued his interests in folklore, stamp collecting, knife collecting, and writing and magic. In the late 30s, he began mingling with a theosophy-influenced Rosicrucian group, and in 1946 joined the Ancient Druid Order, which certainly offered some ceremonial inspiration. It was basically Freemasonry dressed up with the white robes and oak leaves, a highly imaginative reconstruction of druidic rites, about which we actually know next to nothing. And along the way, Gardner was initiated by... Alistair Crowley in his Ordo Templi Orientis, accounting for the fact that uh, Crowley's uh, Gnostic mass seems to have been absorbed into Gardnerian ceremony. While uh, Gardner was obviously amalgamating all these influences, what caught the public's attention was his claim to have received his system of Wicca through contact with that ancient witch cult of uh, Margaret Murray's model, one he identified as the New Forest Coven, the New Forest being uh, close to his uh, home in Dorset. Well, it's a nice origin story, but decades of sympathetic research by Wiccans has failed to turn up any evidence for this group. Gardner did, however, have an earlier secret magical collaborator one identified only within the last decade as Edith Woodford Grimes, who went by and was long known only by the pseudonym Dafo. She was a member of the same Rosicrucian group and shared Gardner's interest in old rural customs, enough so that the two created a partnership, Ancient Crafts LTD, under that name in 1947, built a replica of a 16th century witch's cottage in Brickett Wood, which is just a bit north of London. As it happened, the cottage was also next to a nudist camp, naturism being another interest of gardeners, and presumably Dafos, with whom he likely conceived the notion of ritual nudity or skyclad ceremony. A better-known collaborator in the formulation of gardenerian rituals was Doreen Valiente, who, being much younger than Gardner, survived him by many years and had come to be known by the time of her death in 1999 as the mother of modern witchcraft. It was a 1953 article about the Witchcraft Museum which drew Valiente into Gardner's orbit. Before accepting her as an initiate, Gardner wanted to assure himself of her suitability by gauging her reaction to a book he'd written. As he'd not yet completed witchcraft today, he loaned her his historical fantasy, High Magic's Aid, written in 1949. Many aspects of Wicca, as he would later imagine it, are outlined in the story, including ritual nudity. 
an element that Gardner was particularly worried the 30-something Valiente might reject, though she didn't. But you can hear a similar skittishness from Gardner in uh, more of the interview we started with. The reporter asks about Wiccan believers being attracted by the prospect of naked orgies, which were, of course, part of historical narratives. Gardner responds. Oh, that's nonsense. You see, they've got a very good religion of their own, and they work a little magic if they want to. And, of course, most of it is just they have a little dinner and a dance. Well, what do you dress in when you dance? <laughs> the traditional witch's costume. Which is what? The skin. In the nude. In the nude, yes, yes. Reporter does come off as rather creepy here, but to be fair, it must have seemed like a bit of a bait and switch. The poor jerk just wanted to hear about the orgies. Good evening. Tomorrow is All Hallows' Eve. Halloween is the night of Sabbaths and Black Mass. As in bygone times, the witches of today pay homage to the horned god being in the form of the goat ram or bull. The reporter in this 1964 BBC News segment happens also to be at Gardner's Museum of Witchcraft. Possibly the first, but definitely not the last reporter who would seek out the museum for a Halloween segment. Because Gardner's Wicca gave prominence to traditions of the United Kingdom over those of the continent, it made the modern witchcraft movement a good match for Halloween narratives. After all, the holiday is widely understood as arising from certain traditions in Scotland and Ireland, perhaps related to their druids, in whom Gardner clearly had an interest. But what's curious here is the fact that there is virtually no historical connection between witch gatherings and Halloween. Legends and witch trial records mention many occasions for witches' Sabbaths, May Eve, St. John's Eve, Easter, various nights of the season of Christmas, New Year, Epiphany. Now, All Souls' Eve would seem a likely candidate, as it's long been considered a propitious time for divination, and, at least by the 8th century, when the Catholic Feast for the Dead was moved to this date, was associated with communion with departed spirits. But, in the more than 10,000 cases of witches tried, All Souls' Eve is mentioned only once. In the 1661 trial of Scottish witch Isabel Smith, and even then, only along with other dates, uh, Candle Mass, uh, February 2nd, Rood Mass, that is the Feast of the Cross, on September 14th, and Lamas, uh, Loaf Mass, on August 1st. St. John's Eve and May Eve, that is uh, April 30th of Walpurgisnacht, are the most commonly mentioned, certainly since uh, Goethe described uh, witches' gathering on Walpurgisnacht and his Faust, that's probably the one with the greatest prominence in witch narratives. And this would be a thing that Anton LaVey certainly did get right, as this was the date he chose for the founding of his Church of Satan. Nevertheless, we English speakers, like our BBC reporter standing next to a jack-o'-lantern at Gardner's Witch Museum, well, we like to play up Halloween. And with witches, devils, sabbats, and black masses, and the night closing in over the Cotswolds, I will confine my magic to my pumpkin death's head lantern and return you to the studio. 
While there was an awareness of Halloween in the UK in the 1960s, it wasn't until the 1970s and 80s when celebrations embracing American customs began to ramp up. Ancient Celtic origins aside, America was the home of the modern Halloween, and when Wicca crossed the Atlantic, the connection with witches was only strengthened. I am a witch, and I follow an ancient occult pre-Christian religion of witchcraft. In 1964, America's first ambassador of Gardnerian Wicca arrived on these shores, Sybil Leake, who was also from the New Forest region and made much of this in her interviews. In our 2019 October episode, All of Them Witches, I did a pretty thorough segment on Leek, so I only mentioned her again here as she served to reinforce this connection between Halloween and witches. Having been dubbed America's most famous resident witch, Leek soon grew accustomed to Halloween visits by reporters on the holiday and was happy to derive whatever publicity she could from this seasonal angle popular with journalists. In fact, she'd already started this before settling in the U.S., as in this October 31st segment from 1963. Halloween. Well, for most of us, that's an excuse for a party, an excuse to get dressed up and have a good time. The traditional time when spirits walk. But if you believe in witchcraft, then Halloween is one of the most important times of the year. By 1979, Leek was even being interviewed regarding Halloween party tips in an October issue of Food & Wine magazine. Her suggested party foods? Thyme pudding, flavored with the herb thyme, that is. Moon Maiden Delight, a pudding again, but with hazelnuts and garnished with apple sections cut into half moons to represent the three faces of Diana. And finally, Coriander comfits, comfit uh, being a term from the 17th century describing a nut or seed or licorice root coated with sugar. Oh, and a full-bodied red wine is uh, the suggested accompaniment. Though a distinctly matronly figure ever since she entered the public eye, Leek was also ever eager to attach herself to the burgeoning counterculture of the youth. Of course the young are interested in witchcraft. I think this is a very, very healthy thing in today's age because we have very special people born today in the, the young people. I call them the Pluto people. They're, they have inquiring minds. They're seekers. Come to the summit. Come to the summit. Seeds and stare. Come, come, come to the summit. Come to the summit. Seeds and stare. Come, come, come to the summit. Come to the summit. Seeds Satan at a witch's Sabbath? No, it's not the 16th century, it's 1971. The track, Come to the Sabbath, was the radio cut from the British band Black Widow's album, Sacrifice. It climbed the UK charts with surprising rapidity until certain concerned citizens demanded it yanked and Black Widow, which had only formed in 1969, was left in the shadow of other bands pioneering the uh, Satan shtick. For instance, Black Sabbath, who'd just come together the year before. Those upset by the broadcast of Black Widow's music would have 
truly lost their minds at one of the band's live shows in which the titular sacrifice was pantomimed on stage with a nude female playing the victim. Now, what's particularly strange here in light of Wicca's efforts to uh, purge the movement of any devilish associations is that the sacrificial victim was played by Maxine Sanders, high priestess of a London coven and married to its leader, Alex Sanders, dubbed by the press, King of the Witches. Sanders' reputation spread rapidly to America. He's important enough to have had an entire tradition named after him, Alexandrian witchcraft. Though Sanders had actually been initiated by a Gardnerian, there seems to have been a a mutual desire to disassociate into uh, different paths. I'm not expert enough to discern how they differ in ceremonials and beliefs, but I suspect a good part of it was the uh, Gardnerian's discomfort with that hunger for publicity that led Sanders uh, not only to endorse Black Widow's take on the occult, but to suggest his wife as a performer. Apparently not entirely something to her liking. Early in his career, he'd allegedly been hired as a technical consultant on a British witchcraft film, with the working title 13, but more widely released as Eye of the Devil in 1966. Do the people here think that you're some kind of a magician? A a god? It's a good film, anticipating The Wicker Man, as it involves a conspiracy by a French wine-growing community devoted to pagan practices, uh, which required the death of the vineyard owner for a successful harvest. While Sanders may have offered some ritual advice, it seems his primary function was to generate publicity. I see an article from January 31st, 1966, entitled, for instance, Witch Backs Film, Cursed Be the Critic Who Crosses 13. One of the stars of this film, by the way, happens to be Sharon Tate. Make it that what you will. Another stunt is mentioned uh, years later in a talk given by Maxine after Alex's death, in which she recalls her husband inviting a reporter to a rite during which he claimed he would raise the dead, a stunt involving a friend playing the shrouded corpse. She unfortunately never described the results of this. I mean, can't seem to find an article that came out of it. Another no-no would have been um, Sanders speaking in several interviews about using black magic in his younger days before the coven's formation. I think a black magician like I was, uh, if I'd gone on much further, I probably would have started to use human sacrifice, animal sacrifice, then human sacrifice and probably degenerated and maybe committed suicide or been executed for murder. That's from a 1971 television documentary called Power of the Witch. Even more troubling for good Wiccans would have been the 1970 theatrical documentary Legend of the Witches. It's actually a beautifully shot black and white film focusing strictly on the craft as represented through the Sanders coven. Rated X at the time of its release because of uh, the nudity in the rituals, it also depicts Sanders performing a black mass in a church. Hail Lucifer, from the abodes of night, pour forth thy store of praise. I lowly bend before thee. And there's a sequence mentioning psychedelics and other trance-inducing techniques. 
a topic frowned upon by other Wiccans, certainly at least for uh, public consumption. Modern witches combine old and new techniques to get the scryer into the right frame of mind. While Legend of the Witches offers a comparatively subdued and tasteful depiction of Alexandrian witchcraft, the same could not be said for 1971's Secret Rites, directed by Derek Ford, whose other credits include The Wife Swappers, Sex Express, and What's Up, Nurse? Sanders again stars as himself, uh, though I wonder if his name might have been misspelled in the script as we hear a voiceover in which an actor representing one of those excited kids eager to explore the groovy world of witchcraft keeps mispronouncing his name, Saunders. I'd always had this interest in the occult, ever since I can remember, but I didn't know how to go about contacting anyone until I read a book about Alex Saunders and wrote to him. When I first saw the temple, I got quite frightened. Every terrible thing I'd ever heard about witches suddenly seemed only too possible. And there's also the whips in bondage, not good for PR. Kneeling before the Godhead, she is whipped by Alex ceremonially. Blindfolding and tying the limbs of an initiate can actually occur within Wicca, at least in this era, and was not exclusive to Alexandrian witchcraft. It's something Gardner probably absorbed from Freemasonry, where blindfolds and restraints figure into the rite of the third degree. Gardner regarded the whip or scourge as an important tool of witchcraft, one used in ritual flagellation that would, quote, raise the energy level of the initiate, so to speak. It also reminds initiates of the severity with which their vow of secrecy would be enforced, another very Masonic theme. But uh, in the case of Alexander's uh, preserving the secrecy or reputation of the craft was obviously of little concern. Snake-like, the whip coils across her genitals, symbolizing spiritual fertilization. It is much more than an act of the body. The phase symbolizes the union of two demons, a sensual springboard which will wing the fledgling into the shadows. Alex Sanders has asked us to emphasize that no untrained or unprepared person should attempt to call down any powers by means of these rituals. It would be foolish. It could be dangerous. Well, here we are probably more than halfway through the show, and you're likely wondering if I'm ever going to talk about crazy Christian conspiracy theorists. I'm about to do that, but thought it worth the time to first describe the early days of Wicca when witches remained a bit scary before all the hard edges were lost in a progressive fog that turned them into a harmless, goddess-loving Renfair folk. So, uh, to review. Elements that fed narratives responsible for the scary satanic panic surrounding Halloween were that Halloween was a holiday during which the witch's power reached an apex, a time of singular ritual intensity. That witches worshipped a horned god or Lucifer. And from the Margaret Murray witch cult hypothesis, that witchcraft represented an ancient and significantly clandestine religion spanning all of Europe. 
And if we follow that path through modern Wicca, that would include 20th century America. Oh, perfect fodder for satanic conspiracy. That is, if the old idea of Satan still had any sway in a secular world. Most people, even at the time, thought it all a bit silly, but some people still took Satan seriously. Namely, Christians and metalheads. A Satanist in a vile ceremony. My arm was cut, just a little nick, and my um, blood was caught and mixed with that of the white uh, cockerel, and I had to drink that, and I had to sign a parchment, a proper parchment, that I would serve Satan the rest of my life. And just as Wicca originated in the UK, only later to be embraced in the US. Fraudulent ex-Satanist testimonies were also first told in Britain. What you heard was Doreen Irvine recounting the testimonial presented in her book, From Witchcraft to Christ. Though uh, the book came out in 1973, she'd begun telling her fibs in 1970. She was already sharing a redemption tale in 1969, but it was uh, that of a uh, former drug addict and prostitute. It seems Satan came into the mix only in the spring of 1970 when she was picked up as part of an evangelical tour led by Britain's answer to Billy Graham, Eric Hutchings. The story Irvine tells begins with an abusive childhood in London, with uh, her being driven from the home at the age of 14 by an alcoholic father. She uh, first becomes a stripper, later a prostitute, and then a heroin addict, all before she's 18. One day, one of her stripper pals invites her to a nocturnal gathering of what she calls a secret ancient order. Doreen is blindfolded for the journey, but upon arrival recognizes the place as a satanic temple jammed to the gills with hundreds of black witches, as she calls them. Only VIPs, it turns out, as the venue couldn't possibly accommodate the entirety of London's absolutely enormous witch population. Then a white cockerel is sacrificed, its blood drained, her blood mixed in, and all the rest that we started with. Under her cult name Diana, she becomes a star pupil in her witchcraft studies, eventually developing the ability to levitate, read minds, and even kill birds in mid-flight, though I'm not sure why. And eventually, she's a candidate to become the queen of the black witches a title to be earned in a midnight competition held on the Dartmoor Moor. As the event commences, a local parson and reporters who've gotten wind of the secret rites are seen approaching. The witches panic, but Doreen assures them that she can cloak them in invisibility. She then... ...called upon the devil, and suddenly and completely we was involved in this uh, great stick twirling green mist the Green Mist does the trick, making her a near shoo-in for the title Queen of the Black Witches. But one more trial awaits. She must walk through an immense bonfire. At the heart of the flames, should she reach it, she will meet Satan himself, who will lead his new queen unscathed from the flames. And I walk confidently into the flames, and there was not a smell of burning on my long hair and my long black robe when I came out of the other room. And uh, 
they all prostrated themselves on the ground and cried, Hail Diana, Queen of the Black Witches. Unfortunately, the title and privileges are valid only for one year. After that, she's dumped from the coven and again on the streets in even more degraded circumstances. It's then she hears of a visit by the evangelist Eric Hutchings. She attends, planning to mock the evangelist, thinking she might just punch him in the nose, as she writes, but you know that's not what happens. After being saved, there's a slight backsliding incident where she was repossessed, so to speak, by 47 demons, but an exorcism took care of that. After her 1973 book, she traveled on and off until the mid-90s, retelling the same story and seasonally warning against the celebration of Halloween. I'm, there's a lot of secret activity in the demonic realm going on at Halloween. But imagine the devil laughing at Christians who actually have Halloween parties. Halloween, as it turns out, was the very night on which she was crowned Queen of the Black Witches, so the lady knows of what she speaks. goes on at Halloween, you would never celebrate Halloween again, Christian. They call up spirits to go through the earth and revenge, have their revenge on you're listening to A Christian Perspective on the occult and Satanism and their connection with the holiday we know as Halloween. In just a minute, we're going to hear Mike Warnke talk about what it means to be a Satanist high priest and what devil worshippers do. The evangelical movement was never big in the UK and the satanic panic never caught on. But in the US, it gets jump-started with Mike Warnke's 1972 book purporting to document his experiences in Satanism, The Satan Seller. By 1985, at the height of the panic, Warnke even made it to the mainstream, appearing on the ABC News program 2020 in an episode called The Devil Worshippers. In between his 1972 book and the Satanic Panic interview, he established himself in the 1980s as America's number one Christian comedian. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome God's one and only voice of comedy, Mike Warnke. Beginning with an accidental recording in a Christian coffeehouse performance in 1975, Warnke attracted both the Christian counterculture with his uh, long hair and droopy mustache and middle American audiences with his uh, redneck pride style of storytelling. But his funniest routine is surely his uh, Satan confabulations. Uh, I think one of the things that really sparked my interest is when the program Bewitched came on TV. Mm -hmm. It really struck my fancy and instead of just watching it as a situation comedy, I really uh, watched it as a learning tool almost and I used to sit with a notepad and every time I would hear a remark or a comment or uh, something mentioned that I didn't already know about or understand, well, I would take that down, and then I would look it up, and I'd go to the library, and I would check books out on it. So the whole time I was in high school, I was studying the occult. This uh, would have been during or right before his college years in California at uh, San Bernardino Valley College, where everything went to hell, literally, as he tells it. Other than watching Bewitched, Warnke's childhood in Kentucky and Tennessee would not have seemed to predispose him to all this. He 
was orphaned, both in his book and actually in reality, but was taken in by well-intentioned Christian relatives. But those ties were cut during his college year when he started drinking hard and seeking relief from symptoms of his alcoholism. He accepts the offer of a seemingly friendly, clean-cut young man by the name of Dean Armstrong, who provides him some weed, and from there moves on to speed, mescaline, peyote, and LSD, as the story goes. But when I started doing drugs, it was like uh, Satan used drugs as a key to unlock my subconscious and, and let this spiritual... The uh, not-so-innocent Dean Armstrong soon recruits him to help with drug dealing and smuggling, at which Warnke excels. Free love parties at mansions with beautiful girls and discussions of exotic religions are next. Pretty soon, he's ready to attend a coven meeting, where several hundred are gathered. Finding it all groovy, he moves toward initiation after attending a black mass in a barn featuring a new girl on the altar, desecrated sacraments, and all the usual trappings. He's initiated under the satanic name Judas, baptized with holy water mixed with urine, issued his own black robe, ring, and zodiac sign pendant, and he's good to go. By this time, his physical appearance has changed during gray style. The dumpy figure beloved by Christian comedy fans would have been unrecognizable. He's emaciated and scabby from speed and sports waist-length hair bleached white. His nails are grown out, painted black and sharpened, he says, for fighting, as one does. At some point, this coven has swollen to 1,500 members, and Warnke, or Judas, is raised to Master of the Ritual. The new job title comes with unlimited drugs, alcohol, and a free apartment complete with two beautiful sex slaves. And Master Judas takes the initiative of adding blood drinking to the ritual, just to uh, freshen things up. But I do have a scar here on my wrist where four times a year there was blood let out of my arm in sacrifice by me to the devil uh, in a goodly amount because uh, being the high priest I had to uh, offer a libation for communion which means I had to mix my blood with wine and then my followers had to drink it as a, a form of, of uh, sacrament to Satan and also a form of pledge of loyalty to me. Shortly thereafter, Warnke uses the cult powers to burn down a barn, just to impress the college buddy. But it also impresses his superiors, who advance him even higher within the satanic underworld, which turns out to be a global network. Cat sacrifice and rape are added to the rituals. The hobnobs with Anton LaVey, and in later retellings, also Charles Manson. Unfortunately, his drug use is also escalating, making him less useful to Satan, Inc. So the uh, live-in ladies are ordered to lock him out of his corporate digs, and with nowhere to go, he joins the Navy. The uh, single thing so far that Wonky actually did. While in Vietnam, some fellow recruits help him through his withdrawals and share their faith. And Jesus takes it from there. His uh, testimony initially was accepted without question by evangelicals, 
After all, who wants to spoil a good story? Eventually, the Satan testimony got uh, sidelined by Warnke's comedy career, but in 1979, he pressured the company releasing his comedy albums to release one on tonight's topic, that is, a Christian perspective on Halloween. This is Satan's holiday, and it is a night when there is particular power given to the invisible world or the spirit world. While maintaining his ties with the evangelical community, he, for some reason, in 1974, got himself ordained bishop in the schismatic Eastern Christian Church, the Syro-Chaldean Church, uh, probably because he liked the fancy vestments, which, according to an ex-wife, he would sometimes wear around the house. Then, in 1980, there was another ordination to the Holy Orthodox Catholic Church in Kentucky, under which he and his wife created a charity for kids damaged by dabblings in the occult and ended up collecting about $2 million a year by the late 80s for a fictional, never-built clinic treating a fictional kid by the name of Jeffy, or boy who'd lapsed into catatonia thanks to witchcraft. But as with any Faustian deal, Warnke eventually paid a price. The charity scam, along with uh, multiple extramarital affairs and divorces, eventually led to a 1992 expose in the Christian magazine Cornerstone, which saw him exiled from the fold. But after making some restitutions and supposedly cleaning up his act, he was accepted back, but never with the same enthusiasm. Warnke responded rather ungratefully, with a 2020 book publicly grousing about his Christian critics, Friendly Fire, a recovery guide for believers battered by religion. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Warnke. Another evangelical making the rounds with ex-Satanist stories in Warnke's day was John Todd, who began telling his tales around 1968 in Phoenix, Arizona. I uh, won't be going into too much detail on him, as he really hits his stride later in the late 70s, when his story probably reached its widest audience via Jack Chick comics. Um, if you're not familiar with Chick, he was a producer of pocket-sized Christian comics, sharing the gospel alongside a variety of insane conspiracy theories. In Chick's publication, Spellbound, Todd's claims to be from an ancestral line of Satanists was illustrated, a trope woven into many of the 1980s satanic panic narratives and borrowed from earlier assertions made by those identifying as hereditary witches. An interesting aspect of Todd's evangelical career is his regression into witchcraft after claiming to be saved in 1968. From 1976 to 1977, he ran an occult bookstore in Chicago called The Witch's Aldrin, intermittently during this time, also at the same time sharing his ex-Satanist Saved by Jesus stories. The coven consisted mostly of underage girls, some of whom later accused Todd of sexual misconduct. And those uh, predatory ways later, uh, in 1988, landed him a 30-year prison sentence. It's also worth noting that Todd was dismissed from military service on a Section 8, that is for psychiatric issues. 
never widely popular, Todd positioned himself on the kookier fringes of the evangelical movement, often ranting about the Illuminati. Among those he imagined as members were likely candidates like Anton LaVey and Charles Manson, but later also members of the charismatic movement and other evangelicals he distrusted. Most prominently, President Jimmy Carter. An ugly backstage scene between Todd and Warnke is also reported, um, one in which Todd accused Warnke of stealing his Illuminati angle or his own tales of a global satanic underworld. But I don't want to end on a sour note like this. It's quite likely that these ideas are just in the air at the time. Certainly this was the case in Southern California, where there were several large churches and organizations geared toward turning drug-damaged hippies into Jesus freaks. Recovery from involvement in the occult would have seemed a natural extension, and Warnke and his co-author on the Satan Cellar, David Balsiger, were part of this world. Balsiger was also the media director for evangelist Morris Cerullo, who had intended to collaborate with Balsiger on a book tentatively entitled Witchcraft Never Looked Better. While the book never came together, Cerullo turned to promoting the careers of Warnke and Todd to get that message out, though he rather quickly dropped the more transparently insane Todd. When Warnke eventually found another agent, Cerullo found himself another ex-Satanist, Herschel Smith, who in 1974 published his own diabolical memoir. In The Devil and Mr. Smith, he claims to have abandoned his Christian upbringing at the age of 13, offering his soul to Satan in a ceremony that involved sacrificing a dog, skinning it, and drinking its blood. By the age of 20, he'd moved to San Francisco as a full-fledged Satanist. There, he allegedly enrolled in the College of Mortuary Science, but was kicked out for taking body parts used in satanic fun and games. Drugs and alcohol eventually bring him close to suicide before he finds Jesus. His cult name, by the way, was supposed to have been The Skin Eater, thanks to a reputation for devouring human skin ritualistically removed, both his own and skin contributed by others. The Devil and Mr. Smith is long out of print, and by the late 70s, Herschel Smith had disappeared from the evangelical scene. But before that, in 1973, he made a grand tour of the U.S. and Canada in something called the Witchmobile. And it's on this happier note I want to end our show. The Witchmobile, advertised as an anti-occult mobile unit, was an 8x20 travel trailer packed with cautionary exhibits on all the dangerous occult pursuits tempting youth of the early 70s. On display was a satanic Bible, a goat's hoof, human skull, ritual implements, candles, and even tarot cards, Ouija boards, and astrology items. This anti-occult mobile unit visited not only churches, but also some high schools. Smith actually acquired the Witchmobile in 1973 from Morris Cerullo, who'd overseen its creation the year before in collaboration with Warnke and Balsiger. Now, 
Ever since reading about the Witchmobile years ago, I wondered exactly what it looked like. The name Witchmobile is just so delightful, and I imagine what it would have been like as a bored high school student to suddenly have this wondrous collection of forbidden thrills pull up into your school parking lot. It must have been like the circus coming to town for certain types of kids, at least. In preparing this show, I did happen to find some pictures, which I'll share on the website. The outside of the Witchmobile is luridly painted like a carnival spook house, and inside, along with sundry items mentioned, I see displayed some occult records of the day, including one by our old friend Barbara the Grey Witch, whom we'll now hear from in a closing musical snippet. Happy Halloween. Stay safe. Me amita, me amita, me amita. 